You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray, the biographical Civil War podcast. Episode 2, Ulysses S. Grant, Part 3. In the movie Pulp Fiction, there's a scene where Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield, played by John Travolta and Samuel Jackson, have gotten themselves into a, we'll call it an unfortunate predicament, that they're not real sure that they can get themselves out of. They're starting to panic a little bit. So Jules calls his boss, uh, Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames, to get some help. He wants him to send the cavalry, is what he says. Marcellus Wallace is as calm as can be, but Jules is getting pretty agitated. He wants some kind of reassurance. So Marcellus says something that completely sets Jules' mind at ease. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, go back in there, chill out, and wait for the wolf, who should be coming directly. And Jules responds, well, that's all you had to say. And he's obviously relieved. Now, the wolf is a character named Winston Wolf, played by Harvey Keitel. And he's something of a problem solver. He specializes in handling high-pressure situations and thinking on his feet. In the movie, Winston Wolf speeds across town in his Acura, and before long, he has Vincent and Jules out of their jam. So, what does this have to do with Ulysses Grant? Well, in the fall of 1863... The Union Army was in something of a jam in Chattanooga, Tennessee. In September, the Army of the Cumberland, under General William Rosecrans, had been soundly thrashed by a Confederate force under Braxton Bragg and James Longstreet at Chickamauga. Rosecrans' army hastily retreated back to Chattanooga, disorganized and with its confidence in tatters. Bragg and Longstreet followed the retreating Union Army and occupied the heights surrounding the town on three sides, cutting off the supply lines and effectively putting Chattanooga under siege. And Rosecrans, like Jules, had clearly been shaken by the whole series of events. When he sent his report to Lincoln, the equivalent in our analogy to Jules's call to Marcellus Wallace, Rosecrans reported, quote, Our loss is heavy, and our troops worn down. We have no certainty of holding our position here. And Rosecrans didn't exactly inspire Lincoln's confidence when he concluded that our fate is in the hands of God. I mean, when you ask the general in command what kind of shape his army is in, you don't want to hear him say, uh, well, it's up to God, I guess. Now, Chattanooga was a strategically critical area due to the railroads there, and eastern Tennessee had been especially important to Lincoln throughout the war. So Rosecrans' reaction, which Lincoln described as confused and stunned, like a duck hit on the head, was just not going to cut it. Charles Dana, the War Department official who previously investigated Grant's drinking, 
reported of Rosecrans that it was, quote, difficult to believe him of sound mind. Under the present circumstances, I consider this army to be very unsafe in his hands, unquote. So what was Lincoln going to do? Because he clearly needs to do something. Well, I'll tell you what he was going to do. He was going to send the wolf. And in this analogy, if you hadn't guessed it yet, Winston Wolf is played by none other than Major General Ulysses S. Grant, one of only two active major generals in the regular army, along with Henry Halleck. You see, all this trouble in Tennessee was the backdrop to Lincoln's decision in October 1863 to give Grant command over the division of the Mississippi, thereby placing Rosecrans and his Army of the Cumberland under Grant's command. Grant was idle for about 90 days after his victory at Vicksburg. Partly the idleness was due to injury. In September, he dislocated his hip and got a concussion in a horseback riding accident in New Orleans. The inevitable gossip was that Grant had fallen off the horse drunk, but the truth appears to be that the skittish horse he was riding had been scared by a nearby locomotive whistle. Nonetheless, Grant was laid up, recuperating in a hotel room for a couple of weeks, and then needed crutches to get around. And he was getting bored. He was ready for some more action, and he wanted to move on Mobile, Alabama. But Halleck and Lincoln shot that idea down, not because they thought it was a bad idea in theory, but because they needed the troops elsewhere. Specifically, Lincoln wanted to make a demonstration of strength in Texas to send a message to the French. So what do the French have to do with this, right? I don't want to go too far astray. Uh, This is already going to be a long show. But Napoleon III, who had Southern sympathies, but had thus far taken no action, had decided to take advantage of the disunited states being at each other's throats by occupying Mexico City with a 35,000-man army. Lincoln wasn't in the present position to enforce the Monroe Doctrine, but he at least wanted to make it clear that Texas would be defended. And so, between that and some other diversions, Grant had been left with only two of the five corps that he had commanded at Vicksburg. So that was the situation when Grant got the call from Marcellus Lincoln. Chattanooga was obviously going to need to be the new division commander's first priority. Grant had some recent first-hand insight into what a siege looks like, albeit from the side that it's preferable to be on. So he knew that with the supply lines cut off, it wouldn't be long before the town and army were lost if they didn't get some help quickly. If they were going to hold out until that help arrived, a change in leadership would be needed. So one of Grant's first orders as division commander was to relieve Rosecrans in favor of General George Thomas. Thomas was a Union-loyal Virginian who had made a name for himself as the Rock of Chickamauga by preventing the defeat from becoming a complete rout. Upon receiving the command, Thomas vowed to hold the town until we starve, which is obviously a little more reassuring than Rosecrans. Now, to make matters worse, General Ambrose Burnside was in Knoxville with 25,000 men. Wait, that should make things better, not worse, right? Well, they were supposed to be on the way to relieve the outnumbered army of the Cumberland in Chattanooga, which is good, but Burnside got cold feet, and he wouldn't march despite Lincoln's prodding, and ended up having his own supply lines cut off by Longstreet, so he too would need rescued. Now, that's not to say Grant didn't have some assets. Joe Hooker was coming from the Army of the Potomac with four divisions, 
uh, 20,000 men total. And through what amounted to a logistical miracle, Secretary of War Stanton, with the cooperation of several railroads, managed to organize the troop movement from Virginia within six days. And also, Sherman was on the way from Vicksburg with two divisions. So the numerical situation in Chattanooga uh, was well on its way to being addressed, with the besieging rebels soon to be outnumbered. But the additional troops wouldn't do any good if they didn't have any food. So the supply lines would need to be restored. Grant, of course, was a hands-on kind of guy, so he traveled to Chattanooga personally, meeting with Rosecrans along the way for a debriefing. Now, Grant found old Rosie unfriendly, but cooperative. He later recalled of the meeting, quote, He described very clearly the situation at Chattanooga and made some excellent suggestions as to what should be done. My only wonder was that he had not carried them out, unquote. The railroads and good regular roads around Chattanooga were all held by the rebels. So Grant had to make the trip into Chattanooga by horseback over some rough terrain, uh, carrying with him the crutches that he still needed to walk. He arrived on October 23rd, much to the relief of Rosecrans' former men, who patiently, though anxiously, waited, with their food stores decreasing daily, for someone to show up and take charge of the situation. Shelby Foote provides a description of the problem solver who greeted the besieged army of the Cumberland. Road-worn and hobbling on crutches, the commander of the Division of the Mississippi was a, quote, slight man, rather stooped, five feet eight inches in height and weighing less than 140 pounds, who walked with a peculiar gait, shoulders a little forward or the perpendicular, so that each step seemed to arrest him momentarily in the act of pitching on his face. Forty years old, he looked considerably older, partly because of the crow's feet crinkling the outer corners of his eyes, the result of intense concentration, according to some, while others identified them as whiskey lines, but mainly because of the full, barely grizzled, light brown beard, close-cropped to emphasize the jut of a square jaw, and expose a mouth described as being of the letterbox shape, clamped firmly shut below a nose that, surprised by contrast, being delicately chiseled, and blue-gray eyes that gave the face a somewhat out-of-balance look, because one was set a trifle lower than the other. Wearing neither sword nor sash, and indeed no trappings of rank at all, except for the twin-starred straps of a major general, tacked to the weathered shoulders of his coat. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part three of our portrait of Ulysses S. Grant, if you haven't listened to the first two parts of this episode, it might be worth going back and listening to those before you dive into this one. Our next episode will be part four, and we'll conclude our portrait of Grant. But before we start, I wanted to extend a very special thanks to Sean and to Ryan for their generous contributions to the show. And also a thank you to listeners who have sent emails to the show. The show's address is Podcast at gmail.com and keep in mind we always spell gray with an e we love hearing from you and we really do appreciate any feedback one of the best ways you can support the show if you wish to do so is to provide ratings and reviews on itunes or if you'd like to become a patron on our crowdfunding site visit the show's site at podbean.portraitsofblueandgray.com and click on the become a patron button any and all contributions are heartily appreciated. 
Today's episode will be a pretty long one. We're going to be going all the way to the end of the war. But bear with me, there's really some good information that I think you'll enjoy. And with Grant, he has so many good quotes uh, from his many writings that it really is hard to decide what to cut out. After we wrap up our portrait of Grant next time, we're going to be moving on to uh, another portrait that I think everybody's really going to enjoy. I've already started doing the research, and I, I certainly am enjoying it. He, he really is a very interesting and uh, unique kind of person. And that's going to be on uh, another one of the most famous figures to come out of the war, Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. I really do think that's going to be a good one. So now, without any further delay, we'll start the show. Thanks for listening, and I really do hope you enjoy it. We held him at our mercy. His destruction was only a question of time. That's how Confederate General Braxton Bragg described the Chattanooga situation that Grant had inherited and had taken full ownership of. And that's an important point, ownership, because there were plenty of generals on both sides who would have taken one look at the disaster waiting to happen and said, I didn't make that mess. Let someone else clean it up. Maybe directing relief efforts from afar, but too concerned about getting pinned with the blame should something go wrong to get personally involved. But not Grant. Grant wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, and he wasn't afraid to take risks that might hinder his personal advancement if they didn't pan out. And make no mistake, the Army of the Cumberland was in a very bad position. It's set to the southeast of Chattanooga proper, with the Tennessee River to its back, offering protection, but also making withdrawal more difficult. Facing them on commanding heights on three sides, and along with the river, completing the encirclement and preventing resupply, were 70,000 Confederate soldiers riding high after whipping the Yankees at Chickamauga. Rebel guns were placed along all three ridges, Missionary Ridge to the right, Raccoon Mountain on the left, and in the center, Lookout Mountain, described by a journalist on the scene as being like an everlasting thunderstorm that will never pass over. The Union troops were down to quarter rations and low on ammunition, and as might be expected, Morale was low. Even the normally positive-thinking Grant remarked that it looked indeed as but two courses were open, one to starve, the other to surrender or be captured. So reopening the supply lines was critical. To feed both the 45,000 men currently trapped in Chattanooga and the coming reinforcements under Hooker and Sherman, who would have to rely on those same supply lines once they arrived. Within two days of his arrival, Grant had already adopted a plan, suggested by Baldy Smith, to restore the supply lines. The plan involved a nighttime river crossing by Hooker with 11,000 men, in combination with an early morning attack via pontoon boats led by Thomas. The forces would combine for a surprise assault on Brown's Ferry, currently held by the rebels, where they would establish and hold a beachhead while an engineering team used Thomas's pontoons to construct a bridge. Once the ferry was secured and the bridge constructed, the town and army could be resupplied by river. The overconfident rebels offered surprisingly little resistance and never even really attempted to retake the position after the beachhead was established. By October 30th, the first cargo ships were arriving, 
and the Army of the Cumberland was back to full rations. As Grant succinctly reported to Halleck, the question of supplies may now be regarded as settled. Preparation may commence for offensive operations. Allowing Grant to restore his supply lines without much of a struggle was a costly mistake by Confederate Commander Braxton Bragg. It wasn't the first, and it wouldn't be his last mistake throughout the campaign. His first mistake was allowing Rosecrans to escape after Chickamauga to begin with. At least, that was his officer's opinion. Bragg had lost the confidence of his subordinates after failing to capitalize on the victory, and he would never regain it. Grant knew Bragg pretty well, so he had a pretty good idea of what to expect. He described his opponent as, quote, a remarkably intelligent and well-informed man, professionally and otherwise. He was also thoroughly upright. But he was possessed of an irascible temper and was naturally disputatious. As a subordinate, he was always on the lookout to catch his commanding officer infringing his prerogatives. As a post commander, he was equally vigorous to detect the slightest neglect, even of the most trivial order. Unquote. Grant's description of Bragg's personality pretty well matches most descriptions provided by Southern sources also. A smart and competent enough officer, but incredibly difficult to work with. Bragg's next mistake came on November 30th, when he detached Longstreet with 20,000 men, uh, about a fourth of Bragg's total force, to confront Burnside in Knoxville. Now, this was a mistake because Burnside had shown no signs of coming to Chattanooga's relief, and he had no intentions of doing so. But Hooker had arrived, and Sherman was on his way too, which would give Grant the superior numbers, albeit still a much inferior position. But Bragg nonetheless chose to break a cardinal rule by dividing his force in the face of superior numbers. Now, Longstreet was going to be his normal, effective self in Knoxville, managing to box in Burnside's larger force and create another near-siege situation, and another headache for Grant to deal with. But with Longstreet temporarily out of the picture in Chattanooga, Grant had an opening to launch a breakout attempt, or even an offensive, against Bragg. So after word got out of Longstreet's movement, Grant began receiving requests from Washington, almost immediately, to come to Burnside's aid. But Grant saw dealing with Bragg's army as the more important objective. Burnside was going to have to wait. And besides, he figured an attack on Bragg would force him to recall Longstreet, thereby indirectly saving Burnside. So really, it's a win-win. He just had to wait until Sherman arrived before he could take action. Sherman wouldn't be able to make it for another 10 days or so. So Grant was going to have to accept the status quo in Chattanooga for the time being. All in all, though, once the supply lines were reopened, it was much more bearable. Grant would even describe it as a cordial siege marked by an informal ceasefire. He recalled engaging in what he described as polite conversations with rebel pickets while inspecting the lines. He later appraised that the rebels already saw the Army of the Cumberland as POWs. They just hadn't yet observed the formality of actually capturing them, because they didn't want to have to feed them. On one occasion, rebel soldiers on picket duty, who Grant hadn't expected to see up so close and personal, could easily have shot him had they been so inclined. 
Instead, they saluted, acknowledging his rank, though probably not realizing exactly who he was. And Grant, in turn, returned the salute. But friendly as it might have been, it was still a siege. Upon Sherman's November 14th arrival, he famously commented to his commanding officer, Why, General Grant, you are besieged! To which Grant responded, It is too true. And by that time, Longstreet was besieging Knoxville, too, and Washington was going crazy. But with Sherman's arrival, soon to be accompanied by his divisions, the tides were starting to turn. As Grant remembered, quote, The advantage was greatly on our side now, and if I could only have been assured that Burnside could hold out two days longer, I should have rested more easily. But we were doing the best we could for him and for the cause, unquote. With Sherman, uh, Grant now outnumbered Bragg. But instead of altering his strategy, Bragg decided to double down on Longstreet's siege in Knoxville, dispatching two more divisions. The reason for this was that he had somehow concluded that Sherman's army was on its way to Knoxville to aid Burnside and not to Chattanooga. Now, given the near panic in Washington over Burnside's predicament, wasn't an entirely unreasonable assumption. It was just wrong. And Bragg was also overestimating the strength of the position that he held. Now, don't get me wrong, it was an extremely strong, uh, some even said unassailable position, but Bragg had concluded that Missionary Ridge, quote, could be held by a line of skirmishers against any advancing column, unquote. So two divisions wouldn't matter, right? Bragg's overconfidence had trickled down to the men, too. So when they saw Union officers making preparations for an operation, they just assumed that it was a drill or a parade, because they'd have to be crazy to attack, right? Now, to a certain extent, Grant agreed with Bragg's estimation of Missionary Ridge, concluding that a direct assault on the three lines of rebel trenches occupying the ridge would be suicidal. So his plan called for an attack on the flanks. Sherman would cross the river and lead his four divisions in an assault on the rebel left flank at Missionary Ridge, and then sweep down the ridge while Joe Hooker would take three divisions in an assault on Lookout Mountain on the rebel right. This left George Thomas with the Army of the Cumberland in the center. Their job was to feint an attack on the center to prevent Bragg from reinforcing either flank. Now, it wasn't a coincidence Hooker's and Sherman's veterans from the Army of the Potomac and Army of the Tennessee were slated to do the bulk of the hard fighting while the Army of the Cumberland played decoy. After being whipped at Chickamauga and then subjected to a siege, Grant figured that the troops had lost their fighting spirit and, quote, could not be got out of their trenches to assume the offensive, unquote. But word of this assessment made its way to the soldiers— and, spoiler alert, they took offense and felt motivated to defend their honor. The attack began with Sherman moving against two hills below Missionary Ridge. Uh, the rebels, again overconfidently believing that Union battle preparations were just a drill, were woefully unprepared. Sherman took over 1,000 casualties, uh, but he also took the hills. From there, he would cross the river at night and then his engineers would use boats to construct a 1,300-foot impromptu pontoon bridge. With the bridge in place, Sherman then led the attack on the ridge itself, moving from the north to hit the rebel left flank. 
The end of the ridge was secured with relatively little resistance, and a rebel counterattack was thrown back. During all this, Bragg remained blissfully unaware of what was happening on his left as a result of some fortuitous, well, fortuitous for Sherman and Grant, thick cloud cover preventing him from seeing the action from up on top of the ridge. The cloud cover led to the much derided appellation, the Battle Above the Clouds. Meanwhile, Hooker was moving against the rebel right, taking a bridge over Lookout Creek and establishing a base of operations at the foot of Lookout Mountain. And then fighting uphill and attacking strong positions, they managed to dislodge the rebels from the top of the ridge. It wasn't easy, but it was easier than expected, and that's partially because the rebel defense relied heavily on the artillery positioned on top of the ridge. But they had miscalculated the trajectory when positioning the guns, and they couldn't lower the angle of fire low enough to hit any of the attackers. So most of the shells sailed harmlessly overhead. When Bragg realized the position was in danger of falling, he ordered the guns removed and the defenders to fall back to the center at Missionary Ridge, allowing Hooker to occupy Lookout Mountain with reinforcements sent by Grant. The first day's fighting had been almost unbelievably fruitful. That night, Grant reported to Washington, quote, The fighting today progressed favorably. Sherman carried the end of Missionary Ridge, and his right is now at the tunnel. And here he's referring to a railroad tunnel through the mountain. And left at Chickamauga Creek. Troops from Lookout Valley carried the point of the mountain and now hold the eastern slope and a point high up. I cannot yet tell the amount of casualties, but our loss is not heavy. Hooker reports 2,000 prisoners taken, besides which a small number have fallen into our hands from Missionary Ridge. Unquote. He received a uh, short and sweet response. Well done. Many thanks to all. Remember Burnside. The follow-up attack came the next morning, November 25th, on the formidable Missionary Ridge position itself. The plan was similar to that of the previous day, with Sherman and Hooker hitting both rebel flanks while Thomas showed enough force in the center to prevent troop movements. But the resistance would be much stiffer, and Sherman couldn't make any headway against Patrick Claiborne's well-entrenched position supported by 14 guns. By afternoon, Sherman had taken over 1,500 casualties against a little over 200 Confederate losses and had nothing to show for it. But then something really incredible happened. Observing rebel reinforcements moving toward Sherman, Grant became concerned that Bragg was preparing to attack the Union right. He wanted to prevent Sherman from getting waylaid, so he ordered Thomas to direct a limited attack on the rebel center even though Hooker was not yet in a position to offer support. Within 10 minutes, 23,000 bluecoats were moving across the two-mile front, directly at the strength of the rifle pits forming the first of the rebel lines. Their orders were only to take the advance rebel position, just the first line at the bottom of the ridge, just enough to convince Bragg to call off any planned offensive against Sherman. But it didn't go that way. When they attacked and neared the rebel line, Half of the rebels retreated to the next line back, but many promptly surrendered. What had happened was that Bragg had issued orders for the first line to fire one or two rounds, then fall back to the next line. But the orders were unclear, and not everyone received them. So when the troops who did get the orders fell back, the others thought that they were fleeing and panicked. This left the attackers occupying the first line 
without much difficulty. But then there was a bit of a problem. Now that they were in the former rebel advance position, they were sitting ducks for the rebel artillery firing down from higher on the ridge. The 40-plus guns were raining down heavy enough fire that the Union soldiers knew they couldn't hold the position. But they didn't want to fall back either. So completely on their own, and contrary to Thomas's and Grant's orders, they charged forward, uphill, into the teeth of 40 guns. Grant saw what was going on, and he flipped his lid. He saw another Pickett's Charge or Fredericksburg type of disaster in the making. He said, Thomas, who ordered those men up the ridge? Thomas denied issuing the orders, and another officer present commented, quote, Nope, they started up without orders. When those fellows get started, all hell can't stop them. And as it turns out, that was more or less right. Or at least, the rebel defenders couldn't stop them. You see, Grant's idea that the Army of the Cumberland was no longer capable of offensive fighting had been taken personally. And the men were out to prove that they were just as hard of fighters as the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac and the Army of the Tennessee that had been sent to rescue them. And they were also out for some revenge against the rebel army that had embarrassed them at Chickamauga. So they charged all the way to the second rebel line, overran it, then continued straight up to the crest of Missionary Ridge. Again, all on their own and against orders. They took well over 3,000 casualties, but they also took 3,000 prisoners and captured 37 guns, a full one-third of what Bragg had. And they sent the rebels, who had been so confident just a day or two before that their position was unassailable, scurrying down the other side of the mountain, casting their muskets and equipment aside to hasten their retreat. Charles Dana would later describe the scene, quote, The storming of the ridge by our troops was one of the greatest miracles in military history. No man who climbs the ascent by any of the roads that wind along its front can believe that 18,000 men were moved in tolerable good order up its broken and crumbling face, unless it was his fortune to witness the deed. It seemed as awful, but by awful he means awe-inspiring, as a visible interposition of God, unquote. And Grant reported, quote, Although the battle lasted from early dawn till dark this evening, I believe I'm not premature in announcing a complete victory over Bragg, unquote. But later, he would say of Chattanooga, Damn the battle! I had nothing to do with it. But one Army of the Cumberland private didn't quite seem to see it that way. He would remark of the remarkable transformation of that Army's fighting spirit, All we needed was a leader. Overall, two very daunting positions, uh, Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, had been taken in the space of two days, and Bragg was forced to retreat into Georgia. And the devastating loss completely took the wind out of the sails of Southern morale nationwide. Bragg had jumped out to a big early lead after Chickamauga, only needing to run out the clock and cruise to victory. Now it was like Grant had just completed a 70-yard Hail Mary to steal the win on the last play of the game. Or to mix in another gratuitous sports metaphor, he had hit a walk-off Grand Slam. But the point is, in terms of Southern morale... Chattanooga wasn't just a loss, it was a devastating loss, after victory had seemed assured only days before. Now, demonstrating the kind of strong leadership for which he was known, 
Bragg would heroically explain that the defeat was all his men's fault. He reported to Richmond, quote, No satisfactory excuse can possibly be given for the shameful conduct of the troops in allowing their line to be penetrated. The position was one that ought to have been held by a line of skirmishers against any assaulting column, unquote. Yeah, seriously, that was in his official report. Talk about passing the buck. I mean, even if you think that, you don't say it. But realistically, the disappointing Confederate defeat is best explained by overconfidence and poor preparation. In addition to the unclear orders issued to the advance line on Missionary Ridge that had resulted in a pre-planned strategic withdrawal turning into a rout, the artillery had also been positioned on the geographic crest of the ridge and not on the military crest. So that the guns occupied the highest position possible rather than the highest position from which they could target the approaching bluecoats. This tactical blunder negated a large part of the Confederate advantage that should have resulted from having a ring of artillery on the high ground overlooking the Union path of approach. Instead, most of the artillery fire sailed high, leaving the hard-charging Army of the Cumberland unscathed. So with Bragg's army in shambles, the next step was to rescue Burnside from Longstreet. And Grant knew Longstreet well, both from West Point and from their earlier military service. Uh, The Georgian Longstreet had been at Grant's wedding, and in some accounts, he was a groomsman, although that's not entirely clear. In his memoirs, Grant would offer a complimentary portrayal of Longstreet, quote, He was brave, honest, intelligent, a very capable soldier, subordinate to his superiors, just and kind to his subordinates but jealous of his own rights, which he had the courage to maintain. He was never on the lookout to detect a slight, but he saw one as soon as anybody when intentionally given, unquote. So Grant, knowing that locking horns with the capable Longstreet would be no small task, assigned his right-hand man and most competent subordinate, Sherman, to the task. Sherman rushed to the rescue, sending words of encouragement to Burnside along the way, But when the cavalry began to arrive in early December, they found that Longstreet, hearing of Bragg's disaster, had lifted the siege and pulled back. And upon personally reviewing the situation in Knoxville, Sherman concluded that Burnside had greatly exaggerated the peril of his position. Nobody in Burnside's army was starving, or in any danger of starving, and the officers were comfortably accommodated. It's really hard to tell why Burnside would have overstated the danger, but he almost certainly did. As might be expected, by coming to the rescue in Tennessee, Grant had once again earned Lincoln's gratitude. Lincoln wrote, quote, I wish to tender you, and all under your command, my more than thanks, my profoundest gratitude for the skill, courage, and perseverance with which you, and they, over so great difficulties, have effected that important object. God bless you all, unquote. Grant, in turn, passed the president's kind words along to his men in the form of a general order. And Grant's latest success had also won over many of his doubters and detractors in Washington. Congress passed a resolution expressing its thanks and awarded Grant a gold medal with the names of his victories and proclaimed liberty throughout the land, inscribed on it. There wasn't any more talk around town that Grant was a drunk that needed to be removed from command. 
Now, the talk was that he should be given command over all Union armies. Senator Doolittle of Wisconsin proclaimed, quote, So far in the war, Grant has won 17 battles, captured 100,000 prisoners, and taken 500 pieces of artillery. He has organized victory from the beginning, and I want him in a position where he can organize final victory and bring it to our armies and put an end to this rebellion, unquote. And Elihu Washburn, Grant's patron in Congress, began to advocate for a bill reviving the rank of lieutenant general. With Grant, of course, the only officer to be considered for that lofty post. Now, only George Washington and Winfield Scott had ever held the rank of lieutenant general in the United States Army, and only Washington had held it as a full-time position. So it was only natural that that kind of talk would lead to suggestions that Grant should run for president in the upcoming election, even among some Republicans who were not impressed with Lincoln's performance. But Grant dismissed the political feelers out of hand, providing a characteristically unequivocal response, quote, I do not know of anything I have ever done or said which would indicate that I would be a candidate for any office whatever within the gift of the people. I shall continue to do my duty to the best of my ability, so long as permitted to remain in the army, supporting whatever administration may be in power in their endeavor to suppress the rebellion and maintain national unity, unquote. Moreover, he made clear that he did not approve of the use of his name in connection with any political party. He did, however, allow for the possibility that after the war, he might run for mayor of Galena, so as to put himself in a position to fix the roads and walkways between his house and the train station. The success in Tennessee once again put Grant in the position of having no pressing tasks immediately in front of him. He spent about five months touring the department, fixing supply problems where necessary, and being cheered at nearly every stop. He was invited to numerous banquets to be held in his honor, though he declined most, uncomfortable as he was with being the center of attention. He did, however, allow himself to be coaxed into attending a reception in his honor in St. Louis, where he had briefly lived while he was going through his rough patch. Grant would make a point of noting how much more favorably he was received by the city this time around. His January 1864 return to St. Louis had been prompted by a severe illness contracted by his son Fred, who had come down with a dangerously high fever and been hurried to the city for medical care. Upon hearing of Fred's condition, which appeared to be life-threatening, Grant rushed to be by his son's side as soon as he could conceivably get away. Possibly his father's presence, or pending presence, lifted Fred's spirits and aided his recovery, and Fred was able to overcome the illness soon after his father's arrival. But even during this downtime, Grant was thinking about winning the war. Over the winter of 1863-64, to 64, he proposed two different bold plans to Washington. The first involved holding Tennessee with a small force, while taking the rest of the army down the Mississippi to New Orleans from which they would launch an assault on Mobile, and then march across Alabama and Georgia. In the meantime, the Army of the Potomac would go on the offensive against Lee to prevent troops from being transferred south from the Army of Northern Virginia. The second plan involved converging offensives on Mobile from New Orleans and Chattanooga, 
while Meade's army moved down the coast to cut off Lee's base of supplies in the Carolinas. Both plans were rejected as too risky. Halleck didn't think two simultaneous large-scale offensives in different theaters would be possible, and he was concerned about potentially exposing the Union Center while the troops were en route. So Grant settled on a much less risky spring push on Atlanta. But don't forget about the idea of multiple simultaneous offensives, because Grant certainly didn't. The Lieutenant General Bill had initially failed, with some senators voicing concerns about focusing too much of the nation's military power in the hands of one man. But in March, the bill was revived, and with Lincoln's reserved support, it passed. Now, Lincoln's reservations arose from his sense that Grant's popularity had turned him into a a very potentially powerful political player. And I promise that that will be all of the excessive alliteration for the day. Lincoln's political instincts were about as good as they come, and he was well aware that a victorious general would make an attractive presidential candidate, maybe even as a challenger for the Republican nomination. But Grant's political leanings were still more or less unknown. He had been a pre-war Democrat and had carefully avoided any public expressions of his politics. But Grant's own statements about his lack of political ambition set the president's mind at ease when Lincoln was shown a letter written by Grant himself indicating that, quote, My only desire will be, as it has been, to whip out rebellion in the shortest way possible and retain as high a position in the army afterwards as the administration then in power may think me suitable for, unquote. When the bill passed, it was a foregone conclusion that Grant would be the officer appointed to the new lofty rank, and he soon was. Along with the promotion, Grant took the title General-in-Chief, formerly Halleck's, and Halleck became Chief of Staff, so that Halleck now reported to Grant, his former subordinate. As you would expect, Grant was grateful for the promotion, but he didn't want to get stuck behind a desk in Washington, like what had happened to Halleck, and sucked into D.C. politics. In a letter to his friend Sherman about the promotion, and also expressing his gratitude to Sherman for all the help he had provided along the way, Grant declared, I shall accept no appointment which will require me to make that city my headquarters, unquote. Sherman was glad for his friend's success, but he was also concerned that Grant didn't quite have the guile to deal with the politicians, and his honesty and good character could be exploited by maneuverers who didn't have Grant's or the country's best interests at heart. He advised Grant to, quote, preserve a plain military character and let others maneuver as they will. You will beat them not only in fame, but in doing good for the closing scenes of this war, when somebody must heal and mend up the breaches. Then Sherman went on, You are now Washington's legitimate successor, and occupy a position of almost dangerous elevation. But if you can continue as heretofore, simple, honest, and unpretending, you will enjoy through life the respect and love of friends, and the homage of millions of human beings who will award you a large share for securing to them and their descendants a government of law and stability. The chief characteristic in your nature is the simple faith in success you have always manifested, which I can liken to nothing else than the faith a Christian has in his Savior. 
This faith gave you victory at Shiloh and Vicksburg. Also, when you have completed your best preparations, you go into battle without hesitation, as at Chattanooga. No doubts, no reserves, and I tell you, it was this that made us act with confidence. I knew wherever I was that you thought of me, and if I got in a tight place, you would come, if alive. My only points of doubt were as to your knowledge of grand strategy and the books of science and history, but I confess your common sense seems to have supplied all of this." And for all Sherman's considered words of advice and encouragement, there was, once again, the warning, Do not stay in Washington. For God's sake, and for your country's sake, come out of Washington. Grant would heed his friend's advice, to a degree. He wouldn't allow himself to get stuck in an office job. He was a hands-on commander, so his talents probably would have been wasted there anyway. But he also wouldn't be coming back west like Sherman urged. Instead, after carefully considering the situation throughout the entire war effort, Grant concluded that Virginia was where his personal attention was needed most. So he would go east, but he would stay in the field. Now, he wouldn't be able to avoid Washington altogether. There were some formalities required of his new rank, and the president himself had requested Grant's presence in the city, albeit temporarily. Along the way, he stopped in Cincinnati for a brief but important meeting with Sherman. Sherman would be taking over for Grant out west, leading the attack on Atlanta that Grant had already started planning. And so in the Queen City, the two friends held their last meeting that they would have for more than a year, leaning over maps and smoking cigars, while they drew up the plans for the offensive that both believed would finally bring an end to the war. Grant arrived in Washington on March 8, 1864. 13-year-old Fred, now recovered from his recent illness, was along for the ride his father having decided that the trip to the capital would be good experience for the young man and would offer the two of them the opportunity to catch up on the father-son time that had been in such short supplies since the war began. Their first stop was Willard's Hotel, considered the best accommodations in Washington, situated on Pennsylvania Avenue only a few blocks from the White House. Grant was only the most recent of more than 500 generals to stay at Willard's during the war years. So the stars on the soldiers' well-worn but poorly fitted uniform didn't attract much attention or impress any of the staff or patrons when father and son checked in at the front desk. Another guest of the hotel recalled Grant as having, quote, rather a scrubby look withal, as if he was out of office and on half pay, with nothing to do but hang around the entry at Willard's, cigar in mouth, rather the look of a man who did, or once did, Take a little too much to drink, unquote. A reporter who happened to be at Willard's that day noted that the man who was now the highest-ranking officer in the United States Army, quote, has none of the soldiers bearing about him, but is a man who one would take as a country merchant or a village lawyer, unquote. Another observer noted Grant had, quote, an expression as if he had determined to drive his head through a brick wall and was about to do it, unquote. So a somewhat condescending front desk clerk informed father and son that Willard's could provide only a small room on the top floor. I imagine his tone being similar to a luxury car salesman 
directing a guy who stops by the dealership in a t-shirt and with grease under his fingernails to try the pre-owned lot around back. Grant wasn't worried about it, though. He disinterestedly said that he would take whatever was available and accepted the guest book from the clerk. He signed in and handed the book back, ready to settle into his temporary quarters. But then, the clerk's attitude abruptly changed, and murmurs began to spread throughout the hotel. The signature on the guest book read, U.S. Grant and Son, Galena, Illinois. And the clerk now discovered that the best room in the house was available after all. The well-appointed suite where Lincoln had stayed before moving into the White House. None of the patrons or staff could have possibly guessed that the shabby-looking, poorly-dressed man that had just moseyed into the lobby with his 13-year-old son, and without a hint of fanfare, was Unconditional Surrender Grant, the now world-famous hero of the Union Army. And Grant himself hadn't quite realized the extent to which his reputation had spread throughout the country over the last two years. At dinner, he was accosted by handshakers and autograph seekers. Shouts of, Three cheers for General Grant! echoed through the normally quiet, dignified dining room. Now, Grant wasn't prepared for, or particularly comfortable with, this kind of adoration, so he modestly offered a polite bow to the cheerers and went back to his dinner, probably a well-done steak, without any comment or speech. I came across the story I just relayed in Shelby Foote's Narrative History of the Civil War, and I felt like I really needed to share it, partly because it kind of reminded me of the scene in Empire Strikes Back where Luke first meets Yoda, but more so because it seems to convey so much about Grant's personality. Everything from bringing his son along for the trip, to being uncomfortable with the cheers at dinner, to not making a big deal about his rank or the clerk's dismissive attitude. Uh, Grant was definitely not a guy to drop a, do you know who I am? It really makes Grant seem like what he truly seems to have been, a fairly normal guy thrust into the spotlight by extraordinary circumstances, and not overwhelmed by the situation, but just stoically trying to deal with it the best that he could while keeping his feet on the ground. So, father and son didn't have much time to relax before Grant received a summons from the president, requesting his presence down the street at the White House. And don't you just hate that, though? Every time you think you're about to get some quality time with the kids, uh, the president has to come calling. Anyway, hopefully Fred had some good podcasts to listen to while he was hanging out at the hotel, because I, I don't think that uh, Willard's had HBO. At the White House, Grant was holding a reception, and unbeknownst to Grant, he was about to become the guest of honor. It was a crowded event, with everyone wanting to meet the war hero. Grant was once again a little uncomfortable with the situation, reportedly blushing and sweating profusely as he responded to shouts from the back of the room that the shouters couldn't see the general by standing up on a couch to give everyone a better look. A reporter on hand recalled, It was the only real mob I ever saw in the White House. Now, the cocktail party circuit was never Grant's forte, and he recognized his limitations, admitting, quote, I believe it has never been my misfortune to be placed where I lost my presence of mind, unless, indeed, it has been when thrown in strange company, particularly of ladies, unquote. That's kind of exactly the sort of situation Lincoln had just thrown him into. 
But Lincoln had a talent for reading people, and he picked up on Grant's uneasiness. So he opened up an escape route by requesting a private meeting between the two and Edwin Stanton. But the relief was only temporary. At the meeting, Lincoln informed Grant that the next day, when he would formally receive his promotion, he would be expected to give a speech in response to Lincoln's introduction. Now, Grant held a deep dislike of public speaking. He later wrote, Making speeches is not my business. I never did it in my life, and I never will. So unlike many of the war's uh, political generals, Grant viewed a public speaking engagement as a, a nuisance to be avoided, or if necessary, tolerated, rather than as an opportunity to garner attention at the center stage. Perhaps wanting to make things a little easier, Lincoln had prepared some suggested remarks on Grant's behalf, and he let Grant know that he would be reading his own speech, so Grant should feel free to follow suit. Of course, um, Lincoln rarely, if ever, read his speech when he was speaking in public, so this was obviously an attempt to make things easier on the public speaking novice. The next day, Grant did in fact read his speech, only occasionally looking up. He spoke, quote, Mr. President, I accept this commission with gratitude for the high honor conferred. With the aid of the noble armies that have fought on so many fields for our common country, it will be my earnest endeavor not to disappoint your expectations. I feel the full weight of the responsibilities now devolving on me, and know that if they are met, it will be due to those armies, and above all to the favor of that providence which leads both nations and men. Unquote. And that's it. End of speech. And you'll notice Grant accepted the responsibility as belonging to him alone, but if he ends up succeeding, the credit goes to the men. And that is the kind of leadership that you don't see very often, um, at least not recently. Also notable is that Grant did not include any of Lincoln's suggestions, which led some observers, including Stanton, to speculate that it was a symbolic attempt to establish early on his intent to maintain his independence from the civilians. And that was probably true, uh, but Lincoln did not take offense. Now, Grant's independence from the politicians might not be all that important in the realm of speech-making, but it would be essential when it came to military planning. Lincoln was supremely intelligent and a brilliant politician, and thrust by history into an unwished-for position as a wartime president, he obsessively studied everything he could find on military strategy, so that by the end of the war, he was a better wartime leader than the distinguished military vet Jefferson Davis. But despite all his scholarly endeavors, when it came to actual military strategy, he remained only an amateur, with no genuine military experience. Though, of course, he was an educated amateur, whose opinions carried a lot of weight. Grant recalled that Lincoln made clear that military decisions were the general-in-chief's exclusive domain, but the president wasn't shy about offering suggestions. One particular suggestion called for the Army of the Potomac to move by boat for a landing between the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers. According to Lincoln, the dual rivers would allow for easy resupply over water while also protecting both flanks. Grant said of the president's idea, quote, I listened respectfully, but did not suggest that the same streams would protect Lee's flanks while he was shutting us up, unquote. 
And you can be pretty sure that Lee would have seen that too, uh, because he tried something similar um, during the lead up to Second Manassas. But for whatever shortcomings he had as an amateur military strategist, when it came to reading people, Lincoln was about as good as they come. He sized Grant up and seems to have liked what he saw. He's the quietest little fellow you ever saw. He makes the least fuss of any man you ever saw. I believe two or three times he has been in this room a minute or so before I knew he was here. The only evidence you have that he's in any place is that he makes things get. Wherever he is, things move. Unquote. So Grant decided that the best way to avoid meddling from the politicians, and perhaps more importantly, to keep them from inadvertently divulging military secrets, was to keep them in the dark. So he didn't share any of the details of his plans beyond affirming that he would take Richmond, given enough men. That was pretty much the extent of what Grant shared with Lincoln and Stanton. Give me enough men, and I'll take Richmond. But Lincoln had had enough of generals who sought presidential approval for even inconsequential decisions. So again, he didn't object. Grant's visit to Washington concluded with a brief stop-off at Matthew Brady's portrait studio, where many of the most famous photographs of the Civil War era were taken. It should have been an inconsequential pit stop, not even worth mentioning, except that while there, Grant almost died when an assistant tripped while opening a skylight, sending a torrent of thick, heavy, broken glass falling toward Grant as he waited to have his formal picture taken. Brady thought that Grant's reaction, or more accurately, his lack of reaction, was the most remarkable display of nerve I ever witnessed. He recalled, quote, It was a miracle that some of the pieces didn't strike him, and if one had, it would have been the end of Grant, for that glass was two inches thick, unquote. Edwin Stanton, who had been in the studio with Grant, was not quite so calm as the general. He pled with Brady, Not a word about this, not a word. You must never breathe a word about what happened here today. It would be impossible to convince the people that this was not an attempted assassination. So with D.C. business concluded, it was time to head back into the field. Upon Grant's joining the Army of the Potomac, its commander, George Meade, who had been described by a subordinate as a damned old goggle-eyed snapping turtle, offered to tender his resignation, if Grant thought it best. In truth, Grant had considered replacing Meade. He was concerned that he lacked the kind of aggression that Grant was looking for. But the gesture impressed Grant. He noted, It is men who want to be selected, and not those who seek, from whom we may always expect the most efficient service. Unquote. And so he decided to keep the Pennsylvanian in place. Grant would of course be calling the shots, but Meade would continue to run the army. Meade's impression of Grant was that his new commanding officer, quote, is not a striking man, is very reticent, has never mixed with the world and has but little manner. Indeed, he is somewhat ill at ease in the presence of strangers. Hence, a first impression is never favorable. At the same time, he has natural qualities of a high order and is a man whom the more you see and know him, the better you like him, unquote. Everybody's known someone like that, right? Uh, someone who's real quiet at first, doesn't really say a word. But once you get to know them, you, know, you find out what a solid dude they are. But Grant hadn't come east to win friends and influence people. He was there to win the war. And his overall strategy for doing so 
was to completely destroy the Southern military and manufacturing power. In Grant's words, peace wouldn't come until the military power of the rebellion was entirely broken. So the focus would be on defeating Lee in Virginia and Joseph Johnston in Georgia. Johnston had taken over for Braxton Bragg after the Chattanooga debacle. To accomplish this, Grant favored coordinated continuous attacks in all theaters to prevent the Confederates from taking advantage of interior lines by shifting troops from cold to hot areas. Pretty much exactly what Halleck had told him was too risky back in the spring. All Union troops now on the Atlantic coast would be concentrated in Virginia to fight Lee. The majority of the Western troops would converge on Atlanta with Sherman, and whichever group found success first would then assist the other. The number of troops on garrison duty would also be reduced to about half of those in the field, rather than equal numbers as was the current situation. Grant also was intent on replacing political generals by promoting officers who had demonstrated ability in battle. Though Lincoln resisted this last point. When Grant recommended 100 political officers for removal, Lincoln only approved a few out of fear of political repercussions. The fighting men liked most of these changes, and they liked Grant's workmanlike demeanor. One soldier remarked, We all felt at last that the boss had arrived. But there was one change that they didn't like. Grant would put an official end to prisoner exchanges. And the math behind the decision was simple. An exchanged man was worth more to the outnumbered rebels than to the Union. But the troops thought of their captured comrades, or potentially future selves, starving in Confederate prison camps. The rebels could barely feed their armies as it was, and feeding prisoners would surely be a lower priority. Offensive operations were set to begin in early May. Sherman was afforded some flexibility because Grant trusted him. His directions were to move against Johnston's army, to break it up, and to get into the interior of the enemy's country as far as you can, inflicting all the damage you can against their war resources. Now, war resources would be interpreted liberally. Also, Nathaniel Banks would move on Mobile from New Orleans, and Franz Siegel would attack the Shenandoah Valley from West Virginia, which by this time had become the 35th state. Benjamin Butler who commanded a force farther south in Virginia, would move on Richmond from the southeast, while Grant and Meade tried to draw Lee into battle. Problems with the plan began early on, when Banks was diverted by the administration, over Grant's objections, uh, from the attack on Mobile to an expedition up the Red River in Louisiana. The Red River campaign ended up turning into a disaster, uh, which we'll discuss in more detail in a future episode. Then, in the Bermuda 100 fiasco, Butler's force in southern Virginia was sealed up east of Richmond by PGT Beauregard, as Grant described it, as if he had been in a bottle strongly corked. And Franz Siegel would be defeated in the Shenandoah Valley by outnumbered former U.S. Vice President and presidential candidate John Breckinridge at Newmarket. And that's the battle in which Breckinridge was joined by the VMI Corps of Cadets, memorialized in the movie Field of Lost Shoes. So the heavy lifting was left to Grant and Sherman. Most of the Confederate leadership saw Grant as just another in a string of Union generals, including McDowell, McClellan, Pope, Burnside, and Hooker, destined to be humbled by Lee. But General Longstreet, who of course knew Grant quite well, 
had a different take on the new Union commander. Longstreet's take on Grant assuming command was, quote, We must make up our minds to get into lines of battle and to stay there. For that man will fight us every day and every hour until the end of the war, unquote. And of course, Longstreet was right. Grant had every intention of continuously hammering the rebel armies until all resistance was broken. That was his plan in a nutshell. But Grant was different from prior commanders who had faced Lee in two very important ways. First, he was not intimidated by Lee's aura or reputation. Lee had held a psychological advantage over every commander he'd faced, beginning with McClellan. It was kind of like how Mike Tyson in his prime often had a fight won before the bell even rang, just because his opponents were so psyched out. Lee was in his opponents' heads and had them second-guessing themselves and unconfident, but Grant didn't buy into that. And Grant also wasn't going to fight on Lee's terms. Lee liked to stay mobile, using speed and deception to get the advantage on his numerically superior opponents. But Grant intended to press the action, to take and keep the initiative, and to grind it out. To employ another combat sports metaphor, Grant wasn't going to try to dance around the ring with Lee and outbox him. His plan was to grab a hold of him and wear him down until the rebels were too exhausted to punch back. And then he'd go for a submission. With the campaign about to begin on May 2nd, Grant received one last farewell message from the president that he appreciated enough to read to some of his staff officers. Lincoln wrote, I wish to express in this way my entire satisfaction with what you have done to this time so far as I understand it. The particulars of your plan I neither know nor seek to know. You are vigilant and self-reliant, and pleased with this, I wish not to obtrude any constraints or restraints upon you. While I am very anxious that any great disaster or capture of our men in great numbers shall be avoided, I know these points are less likely to escape your attention than they would be mine. If there is anything wanting which is in my power to give, do not fail to let me know. So now, with a brave army and a just cause, may God sustain you. And Grant sent a sincere reply. It will be my earnest endeavor that you and the country shall not be disappointed. Since the promotion which placed me in command of all the armies, and in view of their great responsibility and importance of success, I have been astonished with the readiness for which everything asked for has been yielded without even an explanation being asked. Should my success be less than I desire and expect, the least I can say is the fault is not with you. Unquote. And so with that final expression of mutual confidence, the Army of the Potomac crossed the Rapidan to Lee's right, uncontested, at three separate fords, marking the beginning of the Overland Campaign. Grant had in mind to avoid the jungle-like terrain near Chancellorsville, at the Wilderness, to try to avoid Hooker's costly mistakes from a year earlier. But Lee had the opposite thing in mind. He wanted to use the uninviting ground to neutralize the massive numerical disparity and artillery disadvantage. And despite Grant's best intentions, Lee was able to get his way, forcing battle at the wilderness starting May 5th. The older historical view on Grant's campaign was that he didn't really deserve much credit for the eventual victory over Lee. He was just willing to lose as many men as it took until he eventually won through attrition. Grant the Butcher, right? Many of the more modern writers have swung in the other direction, 
to the point that some authors minimize or gloss over the difficulties that Grant had with Lee, especially early on. Uh, Like is so often the case, the truth is probably somewhere in between. But I think that understanding the problems Lee caused Grant actually does a disservice to Grant. And that's because one of his greatest qualities was his ability to overcome adversity, to stay on task and keep his composure, even when things weren't going well. So to get the full picture of Ulysses Grant, even if you do find him compelling and admirable, you kind of have to recognize that when he first encountered Lee, he got his teeth kicked in. Their first meeting came on May 5th and 6th at the Wilderness. And after almost two days of intense, vicious fighting in the dense forest, uh, Grant reported that more desperate fighting has not been witnessed on this continent than that of the 5th and 6th of May. On the evening of May 6th, Lee managed to get on both of Grant's flanks, and the battle nearly ended in a rout. The Union soldiers and officers were panicking, thinking that they were seeing another Chancellorsville. But Grant somehow managed to rally his men. One particular brigadier general uh, came running into Grant's headquarters, reporting that Lee had done it again. The Army of the Potomac was whipped and urging a full retreat on the double. But Grant didn't have time for that kind of negative thinking. He scolded the brigadier, I am heartily tired of hearing what Lee is going to do. Some of you always seem to think that he is suddenly going to turn a double somersault and land on our rear and on both of our flanks at the same time. Go back to your command and try to think what we are going to do ourselves instead of what Lee is going to do, unquote. And they managed to barely resist the attack, aided in part by the serious wounding of Longstreet, which would take him out of the war for the next five months. Outwardly, Grant was his stoic self. He had everything under control. But John Rawlins, uh, his adjutant and uh, AA sponsor, Remember the impact that the first encounter with Lee had on Grant. Rollins writes, quote, When all proper measures had been taken, Grant went into his tent, threw himself face downward on his cot, and gave way to the greatest emotion. He wept, and though the chief of staff, who followed him into the tent, declared that he had never before seen him so deeply moved, and that nothing could be more certain than that he was stirred to the very depths of his soul. He also observed that Grant gave way to the strain without uttering any word of doubt or discouragement, unquote. But yeah, after the emotional outburst, within an hour, Grant was again fully composed. Shelby Foote's take on Grant's reaction to the near disaster is, he cracked, but the crack healed so quickly that it had no effect whatever upon the military situation then or later. Whereas Hooker had reacted by falling back across the river, such a course was no more in Grant's mind now than it had been that morning before sunup, unquote. When the smoke cleared, the battle was effectively a draw, though Grant's 17,000 casualties nearly doubled those sustained by Lee. A sympathetic reporter embedded with Grant, admitted that the results of the wilderness had him second-guessing the general-in-chief. The reporter writes, quote, And for the first time here in the wilderness tonight, I questioned the grounds of my faith in him. We had waged two days of murderous battle and had but little to show for it. Judged by comparative losses, it had been disastrous to the Union cause. 
we had been compelled by General Lee to fight him on a battlefield of his own choosing, with a certainty of losing at least two men to his one, until he could be dislodged and driven from his vantage ground. Yet we had gained scarcely a rod of the battlefield at the close of the two days' contest. Unquote. But after speaking with Grant and realizing that he was not at all dejected, the reporter's temporary doubts evaporated. He went on, It was the grandest mental sunburst of my life. I had suddenly emerged from the slew of despond to the solid bedrock, suddenly of unwavering faith. Most of the men supposed that, after the second day's fighting, they would probably withdraw back north of the Rappahannock again. Another skedaddle, as they put it. Uh, like Hooker a year earlier, or McClellan before him. But Grant wasn't retreating back across the river. He had decided to move south, to get around Lee's right flank, in between the army and Richmond, a sidling maneuver destined to be repeated over and over again. Charles Dana summed up the significance of this decision. Quote, The previous history of the Army of the Potomac had been to advance and fight a battle, then either to retreat or lie still, and finally to go into winter quarters. Grant did not intend to proceed in that way. As soon as he fought a battle and not routed Lee, he meant to move nearer to Lee and fight another battle, unquote. And the men were wary of the familiar pattern that Dana describes. They wanted to stay engaged, to try to finally finish the fight. And so when they realized what Grant had in mind, and that they were now led by a general who wouldn't put his tail between his legs, they cheered him, and his popularity with the men continued to increase. So, yeah, in their first meeting, Grant got punched hard right on the chin, but the towel stayed in the corner. He got right back up, didn't even take the standing eight count, and he was ready to go for round two. And so were his men. Most of the Confederates also expected Grant to follow the old pattern and pull back north of the Rappahannock. But Lee already seems to have taken a pretty good measure of Grant's character. He remarked to General John Gordon, uh, who had commented on the perceived um, Union preparations to retreat, Grant is not going to retreat. He will move his army to Spotsylvania. When Gordon inquired as to whether Lee had, had seen some evidence that led him to that conclusion, Lee responded, not at all, not at all. But that is the point at which the armies will meet. Spotsylvania is now General Grant's best strategic point. And of course, Lee was correct. Grant was, in fact, trying to get around Lee's right to Spotsylvania. It was a shorter trip for Lee's army. So when Grant did arrive, Lee was already there, his men constructing what historian James McPherson describes as, quote, elaborate networks of trenches, breastworks, artillery emplacements, traverses, a second line in the rear, and a cleared field of fire in front, with the branches of felled trees placed at point-blank range to entangle attackers, the strongest such field works in the war thus far, unquote. On the eve of battle, Grant wrote to Halleck about the condition he believed his opponent's army to be in. Lee's army is really whipped. The prisoners we now take show it, and the action of his army shows it unmistakably. A battle with them outside of entrenchments cannot be had. Our men feel that they have gained the morale over the enemy and attack with confidence. Here, Grant misjudged the Southern morale. At Spotsylvania, the rebel army showed that it still had plenty of fight left in it, or at least enough to hold fortified positions against direct assaults. 
One of Meade's staff officers, Colonel Theodore Lyman, who would go on to serve in Congress after the war, seems to have had a better handle on the Southern state of mind at the time. Lyman wrote, quote, Lee is not retreating. He is a brave and skillful soldier and will fight while he has a division and a day's rations left, unquote. And Lyman's grudging respect for the enemy wasn't limited to their distinguished commander. He went on, These rebels are not half-starved. A more sinewy, tawny, formidable-looking set of men there could not be. In education, they are certainly inferior to our native-born people. And here he's referring to New Englanders. But they are usually very quick-witted, and they know enough to handle weapons with terrible effect. Their great characteristic is their stoical manliness. They never beg or whimper or complain, but look you square in the face with as little animosity as if they had never heard a gun fired, unquote. It should be noted that by this point in the war, this kind of mutual respect was held in both armies. You didn't hear Southerners bragging about how one Southern man was worth five Yankees anymore either. So the Spotsylvania fighting began on May 10th, with Grant attempting a flanking maneuver on Lee's left. Lee reacted by shifting two divisions to assist in throwing back the assault, and Grant interpreted the shift as meaning Lee had weakened his center. So he ordered a five-division assault right into the teeth of the rebel artillery holding the center. The second attack was also emphatically repulsed, with the attackers taking heavy losses. Meade commented of the fighting, We found the enemy so strongly entrenched that even Grant found it useless to knock our heads against a brick wall and directed a suspension. Even Grant, that really tells you something about his reputation. So Grant was stuck in a difficult spot. He wanted to be aggressive. That was his nature. And Lincoln expected him to be aggressive. But at each turn, he found Lee's army in extremely strong fortifications, so that Grant had no choice but to attack the fortifications head-on or attempt another sidling maneuver. And that became the pattern throughout 1864, Grant would try to get around Lee's right, find Lee waiting for him in earthworks, try an attack on the new position, sustain heavy casualties, and then try to get around Lee's right again. But repeated attacks on fortified positions have a way of taking their toll on the morale of the men doing the attacking. One Union soldier described his frustration, quote, The wilderness had been a soldier's battle. The enlisted men did not expect much generalship to be shown. All they expected was to have battle-torn portions of the line reinforced with fresh troops. There was no chance for a display of military talent, but that was not the case with Spotsylvania. Here the Confederates are strongly entrenched, and it was the duty of our generals to know the strengths of the works before they launched the army against them." Unquote. The fighting on the following day, which was May 11th, was highlighted by a near breakthrough at a salient in the rebel lines known as the Mule Shoe. This time, Lee incorrectly guessed Grant's intentions. The Southern commander mistakenly surmised that, after the bloody repulse of the prior day, Grant would again attempt to get around his right. But instead, Grant decided to take one more crack at dislodging the rebels. And as it turns out, the position from which Lee began shifting troops and artillery right, in an effort to stay a step ahead of Grant, was precisely the position that Grant had designs on attacking with 15,000 men. So when the attack came, it blew a hole in the rebel lines, allowing for the capture of southern men and artillery, both of which were becoming in short supply. But a fierce counterattack, 
which Lee intended to lead personally, though the men and officers refused to permit him to do so, demanding that Lee return to the rear, drove back the Union advance, recapturing the prior lines. Now, the remarkably intense fighting at the Mule Shoe, and also at the Bloody Angle, was once again some of the bloodiest of the war. The small arms fire in some places was concentrated enough to bring down two-foot-wide trees. As Grant's staff officer, uh, Horace Porter, describes it, quote, Rank after rank was riddled by shot and shell and bayonet thrusts, and finally sank, a mass of torn and mutilated corpses. Then fresh troops rushed madly forward to replace the dead, and so the murderous work went on. Unquote. But despite, or perhaps because of, the savage, brutal fighting on both sides, nothing more was accomplished but a blood-stained, frustrating stalemate. Realistically, though, that wasn't a result that Grant particularly minded. In words that would end up being repeated in newspapers across the country, Grant wrote to Edwin Stanton, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. And make no mistake, the entire country was watching Grant's clash with Lee closely and becoming increasingly concerned with the unprecedented level of casualties. In a single week, between the wilderness and Spotsylvania, Grant's army had sustained 32,000 casualties, compared to 18,000 for Lee. Now, Grant could afford to lose 32,000 men a heck of a lot easier than Lee could lose 18,000. But still, that was a tremendous amount of bloodshed, with nothing but a stalemate to show for it, and the newspapers weren't shy about pointing that out. And so, rather than fight it out on this line if it takes all summer, Grant would once again attempt to outrace Lee around the right. And once again, due to the interior routes available to the rebels, they would win the race in enough time to prepare new entrenchments. This time, the May 21st march moved the armies 25 miles south to Hanover Junction, along the North Anna River, a position that allowed Lee to receive reinforcements from Richmond. Grant also received fresh men from Washington, and as would be expected, Grant received more. But though few were in number, the new additions to Lee's army were battle-tested soldiers transferred from other, less active theaters of the war. Grant's new men were mostly green, either new recruits or transfers from the Washington defenses, where they hadn't seen any real combat action. At Hanover Junction, Grant proved that, despite his mulishness, he was capable of learning from his prior mistakes. He almost immediately concluded that Lee's defenses were too strong to attack, and so he decided to switch up his tactics. The plan involved dividing the army from multiple crossings of the river, both above and below Lee's position. The two wings were then to simultaneously attack Lee from either flank and from the rear. Lee saw the danger and came up with a plan to turn Grant's plan against him, effectively creating a snare. Lee would personally hold, with a half-corps and massed artillery, the one position on the North Anna where the southern bank was higher, and therefore held an artillery advantage that would forbid a crossing. One and a half corps were then positioned in an entrenched line running southeast from Lee's position to Hanover Junction, with the line's flank protected by a swamp. Hill's corps was then positioned in a second entrenched line running southwest from Lee's position. So altogether, the Confederate lines resembled an upward-pointing arrowhead, also described as an inverted V, with a point held by Lee along the North Anna. The idea was that troops could be easily transferred over the short distance between the two rebel lines, 
while the Union wings would be required to cross the river twice to reinforce one another. So once Grant had completed his two crossings, Lee could decide which Union wing was weaker, transfer troops from one line to the other, then attack the weaker Union wing with a larger force, while a smaller rebel force held off the other wing from its entrenchments. Southern Brigade Commander Evander Law described the situation, quote, Grant found himself in what may be called a military dilemma. He had cut his army in two by running it upon the point of a wedge. He could not break the point, which rested upon the river, and the attempt to force it out of place by striking on its sides must of necessity be made without much concert of action between the two wings of his army, neither of which could reinforce the other without crossing the river twice. While his opponent could readily transfer his troops as needed from one wing to the other across the narrow space between them, unquote. So Lee had concocted what many military historians have concluded was an ingenious plan that could have potentially dealt Grant a severe blow, even enough damage that Grant would have had no choice but to pull back north of the Rappahannock to regroup. So why didn't it work? And there are a couple reasons. First, when General Warren led the initial crossing on Lee's left, A.P. Hill engaged the still disorganized force with one division, had some success, but he didn't follow up or bring the other three divisions under his command into the fight. The half-hearted effort allowed Warren to begin getting an idea of the rebel formation, and as a result, suspicions about the trap Lee was setting. This led to one of the, the few examples we have of Lee losing his temper. Upon hearing of the mistake, he dressed downhill. Why did you not do as Jackson would have done? Thrown your whole force upon those people and driven them back. Also, Lee was suffering from a fairly serious intestinal illness, which had him under doctor supervision and unable to direct the attack from the field. And he simply did not have sufficient confidence that any of his three active corps commanders, and those were Ewell, Anderson, and Hill, were capable of directing the design. This, of course, has led to one of the many what-ifs of the war. That is, what if Lee hadn't been sick? Or even, what if Longstreet had not been wounded at the wilderness? Lee would almost certainly have felt Longstreet capable of springing the trap, and judging by other performances, Longstreet was fully capable of succeeding. But as to what actually happened, Hancock led the crossing on Lee's right the day after Warren's crossing. As they approached the rebel position, the two, along with Burnside, began to suspect uh, that they were being set up, and they sent word to Grant accordingly. So rather than attacking, they dug in and prepared to defend. Grant then called off his offensive before either wing could be attacked. Grant seems to have recognized that he narrowly avoided a potential disaster here, but he still stayed positive. He, uh, of course, knew nothing of Lee's stomach ailments, and he concluded that if Lee hadn't attacked when he seemed to hold such a significant, uh, albeit brief, advantage, he simply was incapable of undertaking any further offensive actions, period. And so Grant confidently reported to Washington, quote, I may be mistaken, but I feel our success over Lee's army is already assured, unquote. So once more, he moved south. And once again, Lee followed suit again entrenching his army in front of Grant's as it approached. But by this point, Lee was running out of room to maneuver, and both generals knew it. The two armies next met at Cold Harbor, an engagement that would go on for two weeks 
beginning on May 31st. Grant again tested Lee's formidable defenses with repeated all-out assaults. And again, the casualties were severe and disproportionate. 7,000 Union against 1,500 Confederate during the June 3rd fighting alone. Grant received, and he has continued to receive, a great deal of criticism for the June 3rd attack. In part because he hadn't personally inspected the Confederate defenses prior to giving the order. And the order itself was vague on the attack's military objectives and didn't coordinate the actions of the various sections of the army. One of Grant's critics, General Baldy Smith, later said that he was, quote, aghast at the reception of such an order, which proved conclusively the utter absence of any military plan, unquote. And after the charge failed tragically, Winfield Scott Hancock concluded, Altogether, this has been one of the most disastrous days the Army of the Potomac has ever seen. Where Grant hadn't previously expressed any remorse for the hard-headed, costly assaults against entrenched rebels, after Cold Harbor, he lamented, I regret this assault more than any one I have ever ordered. And remember, Grant ordered multiple costly assaults during the war, some successful and some not. And this one very well may be the only one where he second-guessed himself. So Grant wasn't prone to regretting his military decisions. The general went on, Before that, the Army of Northern Virginia seemed to have acquired a wholesome regard for the courage, endurance, and soldierly qualities generally of the Army of the Potomac. They no longer wanted to fight them one Confederate to five Yankees. They seemed to have given up any idea of gaining any advantage of their antagonist in the open field. They had come to much prefer breastworks on their front. This charge seemed to revive their hopes. Unquote. Now, if the hopes of Lee's men were revived, Grant's men were discouraged. After that, they were done with attacking earthworks. For the first time at Cold Harbor, a significant number of infantrymen simply began refusing to carry out suicidal charges against the prohibitive Confederate fortifications. Even Grant had reached his limit. He concluded, Without greater sacrifice of human life than I am willing to make, all can't be accomplished that I had designed outside of the city. Unquote. He was going to need a new plan. But as it turns out, he had one. He'd start by sending cavalry and smaller expeditionary forces to cut off Lee's supply lines. But the core of the new strategy was a crossing of the James River designed to seize the vital railroad hub at Petersburg to Richmond's north. The threat involved in a Union crossing of the James wasn't lost on Lee either. Only a few days before the operation began, Lee commented to Jubal Early, quote, We must destroy this army of Grant's before he gets to the James River. If he gets there, it will become a siege, and then it will be a mere question of time, unquote. Grant's Petersburg plan, like pretty much everything else he was working on, was designed to end the war. And had it been executed as he intended, it very well could have done that much sooner than how things ultimately worked out. The design was for Baldy Smith to lead the Army of the James, which was the army that had been bottled up at Bermuda 100, to cross the Appomattox River from the south, while Hancock led an advanced column of the Army of the Potomac across the James. Then the two forces would converge on Petersburg, while the rest of the Army of the Potomac crossed the James via a pontoon bridge downstream. Similar to Vicksburg, Grant intended to cross the river well downstream of his objective so that he could destroy his opponent's supply lines and attack from the rear. 
All of this was calculated to avoid another siege. Grant absolutely wanted to avoid another siege. As they prepared to begin, Grant wired Halleck on June 11th, quote, Our forces shall commence crossing the James today. The enemy show no signs yet of having brought troops to the south side of Richmond. I will have Petersburg secured, if possible, before they get there in much force. Our movement from Cold Harbor to the James River has been made with a great celerity, and so far, without loss or accident. Unquote. Halleck had been opposed to the idea because he didn't like splitting the Army of the Potomac. But Grant now outranked him. So, despite the Chief of Staff's objections, the plan would go forward. And it should be noted that it was similar in design to a plan proposed by McClellan after the Peninsula Campaign, which was shot down by Halleck and Lincoln. This time around, though, Lincoln voiced his support, responding to Grant, I have just read your dispatch of 1 p.m. yesterday. I begin to see it. You will succeed. God bless you all. A. Lincoln. The movements began on June 12th, with Grant making a feint toward Richmond that misdirected Lee, while Hancock's force crossed the half-mile-wide James on a bridge that was constructed in seven hours, which was pretty good time. The first group under Baldy Smith approached Petersburg from the east on June 15th. Petersburg was, at the time, the seventh-largest city in the Confederacy, and the second-largest in Virginia, behind only Richmond. Its defenses were lightly manned, but impressively designed, and headed up by Grant's old Shiloh opponent, P.G.T. Beauregard. Shelby Foote describes the Dimmick Line, the heart of Petersburg's defenses, uh, named for the engineer who had designed it, as, quote, ten miles in length, Half oval tied at its ends to the Appomattox above and below the town, and contained in all some 55 redans, square forts bristling with batteries and connected by six-foot breastworks, 20-foot thick at the base and rimmed by a continuous ditch another six-foot deep and 15 wide. In front of this dusty moat, trees had been felled, their branches sharpened and interlaced to discourage attackers, and on beyond a line of rifle pits for the skirmishers who could fall back through narrow gaps in the abatis. The ground had been cleared for half a mile to afford the defenders an unobstructed field of fire that would have to be crossed, naked to whatever lead might fly by whatever moved against them, unquote. Upon seeing the formidable defenses, Baldy Smith hesitated, hoping to locate a weak point before sending his men forward. Hancock had been delayed by an inaccurate map that sent him marching in the wrong direction, but at about 7 p.m., Smith decided to move forward without him, employing a series of spread-out skirmish lines to avoid bunching up into mass targets for the artillery. The initial assault was a success, and Smith's men occupied over a mile of trenches on the east of the town. But Smith didn't follow up with another advance. When Hancock finally arrived, he suggested to Smith that their combined force could take the town fairly easily, but he didn't press the issue, and so the two waited until Burnside arrived the next day with reinforcements before moving forward. This delay came as a relief to Beauregard, who remarked that Petersburg was, quote, clearly at the mercy of the federal commander who had all but captured it, unquote. The town was only defended by 2,200 men under former Virginia Governor Henry Wise and Beauregard. Beauregard was pleading for reinforcements. But he was the only Confederate that believed the movement against Petersburg was the real attack, and not a feint. 
Beauregard moved all troops under his command around Richmond into Petersburg during the night, about 8,000 men all told. Over the next two days, Smith, Hancock, and then Burnside probed at the undermanned rebel lines, but never committed to an all-out assault. Meanwhile, Beauregard continued to beg for more men, which he gradually began to receive. On the 16th, the Union troops in the area outnumbered Confederates by as many as 75,000 to 14,000, or more than 5 to 1, yet they only engaged in some disorganized skirmishing and not any full engagements. By the 17th, Beauregard was informing Lee that Grant was, quote, on the field with his whole army, unless reinforcements arrive before 48 hours, God Almighty alone can save Petersburg and Richmond, unquote. Yet, still no serious attack was launched. So it wasn't until the 18th, a full three days after Smith initially arrived, that the combined Union force was ready for a full-on attack. By then, Beauregard had convinced Lee that Petersburg was, after all, Grant's real target. And so he came with most of the Army of Northern Virginia, bringing the odds back to two to one. Grant's plan had called for speed and surprise and the attacking force managed to arrive at Petersburg without Lee catching on. And by nearly all accounts, including that of the defending general, they could have taken Petersburg without much problem. Instead, Smith, Hancock, and Burnside delayed, allowing nearly all of Lee's army to reinforce what had just been severely undermanned defenses. Meade issued the order for an all-out attack on the 18th. But by that point... The formidable Petersburg defenses were fully manned. Remembering Cold Harbor, uh, several regiments refused to obey the order, and their reticence was reinforced when one main regiment that did attack sustained 632 casualties out of 850 men, and that was the heaviest loss to a Union regiment in any single engagement in the war. Meade reported to Grant after the brief assault, quote, our men are tired, and attacks have not been made with the vigor and force which characterized our fighting in the wilderness. If they had been, I think we should have been more successful, unquote. And Grant's response indicates uh, that he was sympathetic. We will rest the men and use the spade for their protection until a new vein has been struck. From the time that operations began on May 4th uh, through June 18th at Petersburg, the Army of the Potomac had taken a brutal 75,000 casualties. And to put that into perspective, they had taken considerably more casualties than Lee had men under his command. One Corps historian described the state of the Army, quote, The Army of the Potomac, shaken in its structure, its valor quenched in blood, and thousands of its ablest officers killed and wounded, was the Army of the Potomac no more, unquote. And if that seriously high casualty count uh, could be pinned on any one man, it was Ulysses Grant. And he knew it. He knew very well that those thousands of young men who had given up their lives had done it on his orders. But in Grant's mind, that was simply the cost of winning the war. And the war couldn't be won without paying that price. There simply was no other way, and he wouldn't pretend otherwise. And that's partially why, uh, though several months ago, when the cabinet was asking about his plans for the campaign, he responded that he could take Richmond if he had enough men. He was well aware that that was what it would come down to. And yet, there he was, once again faced with the burden of ordering more young men to charge 
fully exposed, into the face of rebel rifles behind fortified earthworks and their supporting artillery. On June 20th, Grant got a visit from Lincoln, in part because of the president's concern over the excessive casualties, and perhaps more importantly, the bad press that was resulting from them. But Lincoln wasn't there to bust Grant's chops. The two men, as Staff Officer Horace Porter put it, both felt that their acquaintance had already ripened into a genuine friendship. And so they spent several hours, well into the evening, conversing on the state of the war and other more personal matters, with Lincoln, of course, doing most of the talking. And Grant once again expressed his confidence to the president, reassuring, quote, You will never hear of me farther from Richmond than till I have taken it. I am just as sure of going into Richmond as I am of any future event. It may take a long summer day, as they say in the rebel papers, but I will do it. Lincoln, uh, burdened as he was by all of the death since Grant had set out, responded, I cannot pretend to advise, but I do sincerely hope that all may be accomplished with as little bloodshed as possible. Perhaps it was because of that hope, uh, expressed by the president, that Grant determined to do what he had set out to avoid. His plan of attack had been designed to circumvent the necessity of laying siege, but faced with the alternatives, it would have to be a siege after all and it would end up lasting for 10 months. Now I'm going to insert a footnote here. We should clarify that Petersburg wasn't technically a siege in the purest sense of the term, unlike Vicksburg, because Petersburg was never fully surrounded, and reinforcements and supplies weren't truly cut off, and Lee wasn't entirely blocked from escaping. But the participants and most writers and historians refer to it as a siege, so we will too if for no other reason than for convenience. Okay, end of footnote, back to Grant's meeting with Lincoln. Part of what troubled Lincoln, in addition to the bloodshed, was the state of the 1864 presidential campaign. The Democrats nominated George McClellan, with Little Mac campaigning on a promise to bring an end to the war, one way or another. Public opinion in the North swayed back and forth between support for the war and opposition, depending on the current state of military affairs. And of course, Grant noted that the military situation was also affected by the politics, concluding that the only chance left for a rebel victory would be a divided North. So Grant gave Lincoln his permission to use his statements about the war in the campaign, and when election time came, he took measures to ensure that his soldiers had the opportunity to vote, knowing that they were more likely to vote for Lincoln. Grant's unofficial approval and the military vote were helpful, but Lincoln needed some more victories to convince the general public that the war was nearly over, that they only had but to see it through a short while longer. But Grant was now bogged down in a siege, and if he pressed the issue, it would likely only result in even greater casualty counts, which could have exactly the opposite effect on public opinion than what Lincoln needed. However, as it turned out, Lincoln would get what he needed just in time, when early in the fall, Sherman captured Atlanta, and Philip Sheridan destroyed Jubal Early's Shenandoah Valley Army, which had so recently threatened Washington at Cedar Creek. The pair of victories propelled Lincoln to a, a win in the November election, in which he won all but three states, Kentucky, Delaware, and New Jersey, and easily carried the popular vote. Sheridan's Cedar Creek victory left him free to maul the Shenandoah Valley vital as it was to feeding and supplying Lee's army. And Grant sanctioned the destruction, ordering Sheridan to, quote, 
carry off the crops, animals, Negroes, and all men under 50 years of age capable of bearing arms. If the war is to last another year, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. And the fall of Atlanta also set up Sherman's famous, or infamous, march to the sea, as his army wreaked havoc through Georgia on its way to Savannah, then turned north through the Carolinas, annihilating anything and everything in its path. Grant ordered Sherman to destroy the railroads and anything of military value. Sherman interpreted the latter very broadly, burning farms of non-combatants and shooting livestock. Columbia, South Carolina was burned to the ground, though there is some dispute as to the cause of the fire, with the majority position uh, seeming to be that the burning occurred accidentally uh, through a combination of poorly stored cotton bales, high winds, and, as is usually the case in these sorts of things, lots of whiskey on the scene. Grant and Sherman had disagreed over the best use of Sherman's army after reaching the coast. Grant initially favored moving the men to Virginia by ocean transport, but Sherman disagreed, preferring to march over land. In the end, Sherman managed to convince Grant, and this was due in part uh, to Grant's judgment about Lee's intentions. He wrote to Sherman in December, Lee is averse to going out of Virginia, and if the cause of the South is lost, he wants Richmond to be the last place surrendered. If he has such views, it may be well to indulge him until we get everything else in our hands. That is, Grant didn't think that Lee would leave um, Richmond undefended to protect other areas of the South from Sherman. So the strategy would be to maintain a stalemate with Lee until Sherman arrived to aid in delivering the final blow. Action in Petersburg itself was more limited over the 10-month siege than during the preceding months during the Overland Campaign. Grant and his staff created an enormous logistical operation at their headquarters at City Point on the confluence of the James and Appomattox Rivers, and there were a few inconclusive engagements and plenty of skirmishing and sniping. Primarily, though, Grant focused offensive operations on cutting off Lee's supply and communication lines, while Lee endeavored to keep them open. And then there was the Battle of the Crater, which involved an underground explosive-filled mine intended to blow a hole in the rebel lines, but which instead resulted in Union infantry charging into the resulting hole and finding themselves unable to get out, becoming fish in the proverbial barrel for the recovering rebel riflemen. And Grant later described that ill-fated enterprise as, quote, the saddest affair I have witnessed in this war. Such opportunity for carrying fortifications I have never seen and do not expect again to have. Unquote. Then in January of 1865, Fort Fisher, North Carolina, near Wilmington, fell into Union hands in a combined Army-Navy operation, which effectively cut off any Confederate access to the Atlantic. When combined with the loss of the Shenandoah Valley to Sheridan, the loss at Fort Fisher further reduced Lee's army's access to food and supplies, and as a result, rebel desertion increased. Now, Lee still led an army sufficiently strong to defend Richmond, or at least sufficiently strong to make taking Richmond by force not worth the price of admission. But the Confederate government was rapidly losing the ability to feed its soldiers. Shelby Foote describes a somewhat amusing exchange between Lee and his son Custis, that reveals the dire straits the Army of Northern Virginia found itself in after the losses at Fort Fisher and in the valley at Cedar Creek. A pacing and exasperated Lee confides to his son, quote, Well, Mr. Custis, 
I have been up to see the Congress, and they do not seem to be able to do anything but eat peanuts and chew tobacco while my army is starving. I told them the condition my men were in and that something must be done at once, but I can't get them to do anything. Mr. Custis, when this war began, I opposed it, bitterly opposed it. I told them that unless every man shall do his duty, they would repent it. Now, they will repent, unquote. So, as the eventual outcome started to look more and more clear in late January, Grant received a letter requesting passage through the Union lines by a peace delegation headed by Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens uh, for the purpose of visiting Washington. According to General Meade, when word of the letter began spreading, quote, soldiers on both sides cried out lustily, peace, peace. Grant took the delegation in and made them comfortable. But, of course, he wasn't going to let them pass through until approved by the administration. And he certainly wasn't going to discuss anything political himself. The first thing Grant heard back was, Let nothing which is transpiring change, hinder, or delay your military movements or plans. Grant, uh, who had interpreted the delegation as only a ploy for a temporary ceasefire, responded, quote, There will be no armistice in consequence of the presence of Mr. Stevens and others within our lines. The troops are kept in readiness to move on the shortest notice, if occasion should justify it, unquote. Lincoln was not going to dignify the dignitaries with a hearing in Washington, but he agreed to a conference in Hampton Roads down in southeast Virginia. But then everything was canceled when it was revealed that the delegates' instructions permitted them to discuss peace between the two countries. Lincoln could not accept that, as to do so would implicitly concede that there were, in fact, two countries. But Grant, uh, revealing that the prospect of a negotiated peace was as appealing to him as to the soldiers uh, who had cheered the delegates, stepped in, writing to Stanton, I am convinced upon conversations with Messrs. Stevens and Hunter that their intentions are good and their desire sincere to restore peace and union. I fear now that going back without any expression from anyone in authority will have a bad influence. I am sorry that Mr. Lincoln cannot have an interview. Unquote. Upon reading Grant's note, uh, Lincoln reconsidered. He responded to Grant, Say to the gentlemen I will meet with them personally at Fortress Monroe as soon as I can get there. And he left the same day by steamboat with Secretary of State Seward. Obviously nothing ever came of the talks. Lincoln insisted on abolition and a restored union as essential to any agreement, and the Confederate delegation didn't have authority from Jefferson Davis to discuss either. But regardless, the really interesting thing about the whole affair, for our purposes, is that first, uh, the general who had turned his life around in the war and the fighting men themselves were more eager and open to peace talks than the politicians. And second, Grant's opinion carried enough weight with Lincoln to convince him to reconsider a decision on what amounted to a political question. Now, that seems to suggest that Honest Abe held Grant in higher regard than he had any of the prior military commanders. He certainly wasn't interested in McClellan's opinions on any political issues. And that was probably because of what Grant had accomplished on the battlefield, but also, at least in part, probably because the two had in fact developed a legitimate friendship. As spring approached, Grant was consolidating all unoccupied Union troops for the eventual final assault on Richmond and Petersburg. He hoped to have 200,000 for the soon-to-come knockout blow, and Sherman continued north toward Richmond, 
And having wrecked the Shenandoah Valley, Sheridan prepared to move east. At the same time, Grant from City Point was masterminding an attack on Mobile and Selma in Alabama. The Confederacy was on the ropes, and he intended to keep the pressure on. By then, Grant's greatest fear was that Lee would abandon Richmond to save the army, possibly to join Joseph Johnston in the Carolinas, which Grant estimated could prolong the war by as long as two years. Richmond itself was now only a secondary objective. The most important thing was to prevent Lee from regaining any ability to maneuver by breaking free. Grant remembered, quote, I was afraid every morning that I would awake from my sleep to hear that Lee had gone, and that nothing was left but a picket line. He had his railroad by the way of Danville South, and I was afraid that he was running off his men and all stores and ordnance, except such as would be necessary to carry with him for the immediate defense. I knew he could move much more lightly and more rapidly than I, and if he got the start, he would leave me behind so that he would have the same army to fight again farther south. Unquote. And one final peace feeler came in March, this time from Lee himself. It arose from a meeting between General Longstreet and General Ord, who were two old friends from their U.S. Army days, now on opposite sides. They had met between the lines and considered that maybe if the soldiers could talk it out without the politicians, they could reach an agreement with terms honorable to both sides. Lee, along with John Breckinridge, now acting Secretary of War, supported the idea. And so Lee sent a letter to Grant suggesting a military convention. Grant dutifully sent the letter up the chain of command to Stanton and Lincoln and awaited instructions before responding. He didn't have to wait long. The response, dictated by Lincoln and signed by Stanton, read, quote, The president directs me to say to you that he wishes you to have no conference with General Lee, unless it be for the capitulation of General Lee's army, or on some minor and purely military matter. He instructs me to say that you are not to decide, discuss, or confer upon any political question. Such questions the president holds in his own hands, and he will submit them to no military conferences or conventions. In the meantime, you are to press to the utmost your military advantages. Unquote. And so that was that. Grant's answer to Lee stated that he had, quote, no authority to accede to your proposition. Such authority is vested in the President of the United States alone. I would not refuse an interview on any subject on which I have a right to act, which, of course, would be such as are purely of a military character, unquote. Obviously, that military convention was never going to happen, but it really does make you wonder what kind of terms that Grant and Lee would have come up with if, had they been given the chance. You really, you never know. On March 21st, Grant was ordering Sheridan to destroy the last two roads out of Richmond and to rejoin Grant so that his cavalry would be ready to act when the seemingly inevitable breakout attempt came. The attempt came on March 25th. Lee ordered a surprise assault on Fort Stedman on the Union right. Lee was well aware that the attack itself wouldn't succeed. Instead, it was intended to distract and disrupt the Union army long enough to allow for the breakout on the Union left. Lee had already informed Jefferson Davis that Richmond couldn't hold out much longer and should be evacuated. Both men recognized the military reality of this situation, and yet Davis clung to what Lee described as remarkable faith in the possibility of still winning our independence. 
And Grant had a somewhat different take on Jefferson Davis, writing, quote, Mr. Davis has an exalted opinion of his own military genius. On several occasions during the war, he came to the relief of the Union Army by means of his superior military genius, unquote. Fort Stedman, which ended up being the Army of Northern Virginia's final offensive action in the war, was briefly captured, but it couldn't be held long and didn't create nearly enough of a disturbance to allow for the breakout. But by this point, Grant was smelling blood. He remarked to Sheridan on the same day of the Fort Stedman fighting, I mean to end this business now. On March 29th, Grant ordered Sheridan to lead an assault on the rebel right, presumed to have been weakened by the shift of troops for the Fort Stedman attack, while the Union Center prepared for an advance straight ahead in the event that Lee transferred troops to address Sheridan. Lee was well aware that the Fort Stedman attack would induce Grant to make an attack on his right, but he simply no longer had the resources to extend his lines sufficiently to address it. So instead, he detached General George Pickett with a force of 12,000 men to intercept the Union flankers. Pickett was initially successful in halting the Union progress, but Sheridan's overwhelming numbers eventually turned the Battle of Five Forks into a rout, with over 5,000 rebel prisoners and five guns captured by Sheridan. Grant then ordered an all-out assault on the center for the next day, April 2nd, beginning at 5 a.m. The attack threw the defenders back, and an attempted counterattack was repulsed. Only a delay required to reorganize the Union Army prevented the rebel positions from being completely overrun. And the writing was now on the wall. Petersburg would surely fall, so Lee withdrew during the night, uh, leading to a panic in Richmond. George Pickett's wife, Sally, reported, quote, The populace had become a frenzied mob, and the kingdom of Satan seemed to have transferred to the streets of Richmond. Unquote. Fires were set, warehouses raided, and upon the citizens discovering that some of the shortages that they had been suffering had been worsened by speculators storing up food and supplies in hopes of getting a, a higher price as the situation deteriorated, a riot broke out. But Richmond itself no longer concerned Grant. As he directed Sheridan, rebel armies are now the only strategic points to strike at. Lee's withdrawal had begun a six-day race west, as the rebels desperately sought an escape route into Lynchburg or the Blue Ridge Mountains. Both sides marched at night, with Grant's army covering 28 miles in a single day at one point. The rebels were initially relieved to be out of the trenches and back out into the open, but when promised stores of food were not delivered, and the army began to starve and was therefore delayed by the need to forage for food through the Virginia countryside, which had already been picked clean, it was becoming clear that escape would be impossible. So, knowing Lee was surrounded and had no food, Grant initiated surrender talks, and Lee soon requested an interview for the purpose of discussing terms. Grant accepted and permitted Lee to choose the location, which ended up being the home of Wilmer McLean in Appomattox Courthouse. McLean had previously lived near Manassas and had moved to Appomattox to get away from the war. Shelby Foote provides a fantastic description of the scene of the April 9, 1865 surrender, the dramatic conclusion of the war that had gone on for four years and cost so many lives. Foote writes, quote, Grant entered and went at once to Lee, who rose to meet him. They shook hands, one of middle height, slightly stooped, 
his hair and beard nut brown without a trace of gray, a little awkward and more than a little embarrassed, as he himself later said. Mud-spattered trouser legs stuffed into muddy boots, tunic rumbled and dusty, wearing no sidearms, not even spurs. And the other tall and patrician-looking, immaculately groomed and clad with his red sash and ornate sword, fire-gilt buttons and polished brass, silver hair and beard, demonstrating withal, as one observer noted, that happy blend of dignity and courtesy so difficult to describe. Fifteen years apart in age, the younger commander's 43rd birthday was just over two weeks off. They presented a contrast in more than appearance. Surprised at his own reaction to the encounter, Grant did not know what to make of Lee's at all. And here Foote quotes Grant, As he was a man of much dignity with an impassable face, Grant afterwards declared, it was impossible to say whether he felt inwardly glad that the end had finally come or felt sad over the results and was too manly to show it. Whatever his feelings, they were entirely concealed from my observation. But my own feelings, which had been quite jubilant on the receipt of his letter, were sad and depressed. I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought." Unquote. Shelby Foote really has a way of setting the scene, doesn't he? And for anyone that's really interested in learning about the U.S. Civil War in, in great detail, I highly recommend Shelby Foote's Narrative History of the Civil War. It's, it's written in multiple volumes, and it's thousands of pages long. And so it's not a quick read, but it truly is an incredible book. So after the handshake, Grant made some polite small talk, recalling that the two men had met once before when they fought on the same side in Mexico. But Lee, somewhat understandably, was not in the mood for small talk, and so he turned the conversation back to the business at hand. Grant's terms were about as conciliatory as they could possibly have been under the circumstances. It's interesting how early in the war at Fort Donelson, it was unconditional surrender only. Then at Vicksburg, he allowed a couple concessions. But now that the war was all but over, he allowed for the parole of the men and officers, with the officers permitted to keep their sidearms and horses, uh, though the soldiers' arms, ammo, and military supplies would be turned over. Now, no one would be imprisoned or charged with treason. The terms were precisely as had been agreed in the notes the men had exchanged, with Grant even allowing further concessions. The rebel soldiers would also be permitted to take their own horses and mules with them to assist the farmers in resuming agricultural work. And Grant agreed to provide the defeated rebels with rations out of the Union stores. Lee had been concerned that Grant, upon having Lee's army effectively in his custody, might rethink the generous terms that he had extended in writing. But when Grant's old friend Longstreet vouched for his honesty, uh, Lee was satisfied. Grant remembered the feeling of beginning to draft the document that would officially bring the war to a close, or at least the war in Virginia to a close. Grant writes, quote, When I put my pen to the paper, I did not know the first word I should make use of in writing the terms. I only knew what was in my mind, and I wished to express it clearly so that there could be no mistake, unquote. And then apologizing for his uh, rumpled appearance on account of having had his baggage misplaced, Grant said to Lee, I thought you would rather receive me as I was than be detained, 
And Lee appreciated that, responding, I am very glad you did it that way. After the final round of handshakes, Lee departed. Union soldiers began to cheer as Lee mounted and left, but Grant ordered the cheering stopped. As he later explained, quote, The Confederates were now our countrymen. We did not want to exult over their downfall, unquote. So Grant was a fierce fighter, but with the fighting ended, he became a sympathetic victor and had no interest in seeing or inflicting additional unnecessary suffering. Grant's magnanimity included a visit with the rebel army before its formal surrender. And before debarking, he and Lee would sit together on the porch of the McLean home, uh, speaking with visitors from both armies. Julia suggested that they make a trip now to occupied Richmond to take part in the victory celebration going on in the defeated capital. But Grant declined, writing to his wife, I would not distress these people. They are feeling their defeat bitterly, and you would not add to it by witnessing their despair, would you? And so immediately following the devastating war that had torn the country apart, his feelings were parallel to what he had experienced at the conclusion of a bloody battle. Quote, While a battle is raging, one can see his enemy mowed down by the thousands, or by the tens of thousands, with great composure. But after the battle, these scenes are distressing, and one is naturally disposed to do as much to alleviate the suffering of an enemy as a friend. Unquote. Like Lee, after the war, Grant would favor reconciliation, resisting cries for retribution against his former foes, and once again fellow Americans. And as we shall see in our fourth and final installment on U.S. Grant, he would come to play an important part in Reconstruction, both as a general and then as president, called upon to make many difficult decisions affecting the rights of citizens, old and new, in the postbellum South. Appomattox, April 9, 1865 from headquarters, Army of the United States, to Honorable E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War, Washington. General Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia this afternoon upon terms proposed by myself. The accompanying additional correspondence will show the conditions fully. U.S. Grant, Lieutenant General. I want to thank all of you who hung in there with me through this our longest episode thus far, by far. I promise that part four won't be nearly so long. And I also want to say thank you for all the support the show has received thus far. Every single review, contribution, or email is much appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future shows or any questions about this show, or you just want to say hi, feel free to email us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. And remember, gray is spelled G-R-E-Y. Emails are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. If you'd like to make a contribution to the show, you can do so at portraitsofblueandgray.podbean.com, where you'll click on the Become a Patron badge. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to talk to you again soon. jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh. 
The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.